You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. The fictional land of Narnia has been in the news as of late. Have you noticed that? About the last four months. That is due to the theatrical release of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which is a movie based upon a book by the same title by C.S. Lewis, part of the Chronicles of Narnia. And for about 18 months, since I heard that the movie was going to be produced, I've been relatively excited because I have always enjoyed C.S. Lewis's children's books. Never read them till I was an adult, but as an adult I even enjoyed children's books. I don't like allegory, I don't like fiction, and I don't enjoy novels. And these are fictional allegorical novels, and I loved them. And so I was excited when a movie was being made, and it has proved to be faithful to C.S. Lewis's books, both in its intention and in the details of the movie as well. And the release of the movie has served to sort of, for me at least, highlight a problem that we're facing within Christianity and within Christian circles. Now, don't be confused, don't misunderstand, I should say. I'm no advocate of all of C.S. Lewis's theology. C.S. Lewis had some blind spots. C.S. Lewis had some quirky things. I'm not advocating his theology, but I did enjoy his children's books. With the release of the movie has come a barrage, just as with The Passion of the Christ, of all of these Christian materials that are to be used for evangelism and discipleship and Bible studies. And the reaction to of Christians at the release of the movie, rather than just being glad for a piece of maybe benign entertainment that they could enjoy and maybe seeing something that they've always envisioned in their minds, put onto screen, and just expressing joy at that and being thankful for it and going and seeing it, Christians have gone, as far as I'm concerned, off the deep end. To illustrate this, just recently we received in the mail at the church a Narnia resource kit. And it was a box, and in the box were all of these children's diagrams and uh, coloring pages and leader's guides and Bible study tools, everything that we would need as a church to host our own Narnia event, complete with a recipe for Turkish delight, which is part of the story, and how to have a devotional based upon the movie and in the resource kit was a DVD, and on the DVD it had all of these interviews of pastors and youth leaders and Christian leaders in different community groups. And one pastor said, we are so excited to have this happen because finally we have a vehicle, an opportunity to share the message of faith, hope, and love with our community. Now, are we called to share the message of faith, hope, and love? Is that the gospel, faith, hope, and love? Friends, it's not. You know what the gospel is? All of humanity has sinned. God is very angry at you because of your sin, but He has provided a sacrifice who took that sin if you will believe on Him. No faith, no hope, no love. That's not the gospel. But finally we have an opportunity to share the message of faith, hope, and love. One youth pastor got on and said, it's not often the church has an opportunity to jump onto a cultural bandwagon and see something like this to reach people for the Lord. We need opportunities to share the Lord. 
Do we need that? Another pastor, just Sunday last, on this DVD, said the Sunday after the release of the movie, I'm going to be preaching a message on the life of C.S. Lewis. Not an exposition of Scripture, an explanation of the life of C.S. Lewis. Another church, I'll give you a couple more examples. These, these I've seen not on the resource DVD, but in the news. And I'm sharing these with you because, friends, this grieves me deeply. Another church, when they walked into the service last Sunday, they had their entire sanctuary decorated like the fictional land of Narnia. And in order to get into the sanctuary, you had to walk through a wardrobe and brush against these coats, and you exited into or entered into the land of Narnia, which was their sanctuary for that Sunday. I was in a Houston church. Another pastor of a Houston church, along with his wife and the church staff, wrote a 99-page Advent devotional for use in the community. It's called Through the Wardrobe. And every day for your devotions, you read a passage out of the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Then there is a lesson based upon that passage of the book. And then there are some suggested Bible readings. Now, do you see what the problem is? The problem is that we as Christians and the church in this country, and this is what grieves me so deeply, we have a stunningly low view of Scripture. Stunningly low. We are looking for some tool, something we could use. If we just had something that we could grab a hold of and use to reach people with the Gospel. If we just had something that had the power to connect with people. Something that could reach people where they're at. Something that is relevant. But friends, we just don't have anything like that, do we? (laughs) And I find myself asking, how in the world did the Apostle Paul do it? How did he ever plant churches in every corner of the Roman Empire and train and equip elders for those churches and establish centers of discipleship and evangelism and plant churches that outlived him by centuries and lead literally thousands of people to Christ in less than 15 years? How did he do it? What was his tool? What was his cultural niche? What was it that the Apostle Paul was able to grab onto that gave him that opportunity and gave him the power to reach people with the Gospel? Did he sit around and wish, I wish I had some audio-video production that I could really seize on to reach people with the Gospel? Did the Apostle sit around and plan that? Or did they just say, hey, here's an idea. Let's proclaim the message of the Word and see what that can do. We have a stunningly low view of Scripture. What have we come to when we sit around and wait for some opportunity, wait for something that has power to bring people to the Lord? This stunningly low view of Scripture is expressed day after day after day in churches all across our country, even maybe by some of you, Fad after fad sweeps into the church almost one a week that promises to be the next best greatest thing to strike church Christianity for 2,000 years. And everybody jumps on board with it. Or you hear people hand you a book and say, man, you got to read this book. This book changed my life. This book changed my life. Man, was that a powerful book. Great book. And then they dust off their Bibles and head to church. That is, if they attend a church where Bibles are welcome. Because if you come in the door with your Bible... 
And all of you are sitting here with Bibles in your lap and some pagan or heathen walks in the door, he doesn't have a Bible, he's going to feel out of place. We don't want anybody feeling out of place. So leave your Bibles at home. People want Bible studies without study. They just want a social gathering where we can pool our ignorance and baptize it with Christian terminology. And preaching is out because our Bibles are relics of a bygone age. And it's too intellectual. And if you get up and explain Scripture to people, you people who sit in the pews are too ignorant to understand all of that. That's how pastors think. Not this one, but some pastors think that way. And you can't possibly be too intellectual or too heady or explain Scripture because you can't understand that. That's not relevant. What people really need is something to help them get through this coming week. And Scripture can't do that. A pathetically low view of Scripture. Friends, such is the day and the age in which we live. And almost every week, you and I are presented with more and more examples of the church's pathetically low view of Scripture. So it is refreshing to open our Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 19, which I would encourage you to do, and to get a glimpse of what Scripture teaches is the role of the Word of God in the life and ministry of the church. Acts chapter 19. Do you think the Apostle Paul had a stunningly low view of Scripture? I think the Apostle Paul had a very high view of Scripture. But maybe it would be more correct to say the Apostle Paul had a normal, biblical view of Scripture. But from our day, we look at it and we say, man, this guy almost idolized Scripture. No, he just thought of it biblically, how he should think of the Word of God. It wasn't a high view of Scripture, it was a normal view of Scripture. And our low view of Scripture is an abnormal view of Scripture. In Acts chapter 19, beginning at verse 8, 9, and 10, and really for all of this chapter, Luke presents to us the role of the Word of God in the city of Ephesus. Paul has gone into Ephesus. He has begun to teach and preach the Word of God. And I want you to look at the emphasis that Luke gives us, beginning at verse 8. And he, that is Paul, entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the people, he withdrew from them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. This took place for two years, so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And now I want you to look down at verse 20. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Now do you notice the emphasis on Scripture? Paul went into the synagogue and what did he do? Reasoning and persuading. Some people were hardened and so Paul left and he went to another place. And he reasoned and persuaded daily and he did this for two years so that everybody in the province of Asia from Ephesus heard the word of the Lord. So verse 20 says, "All or the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. I want you to notice three things about the Scriptures in verses 8, 9, and 10. First of all, I want you to notice how the Word of God is proclaimed. Verse 8, He entered the synagogue and He continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Now do you remember, this is not the first time that Paul was in the synagogue in Ephesus. Do you remember when the last time was? The end of his second missionary journey. He stopped in Ephesus, dropped off Priscilla and Aquila. He was there for a Sabbath while he was waiting for a ship to set sail for Jerusalem. So Paul went into the synagogue. And what was their response? Do you remember what it was? Stay with us, Paul. They urged him to stay there. And Paul said he couldn't do it. 
He had a vow to keep. He was heading to Jerusalem and he set sail. And as he set sail, he said to them, I will return again if the Lord wills. Well, now the Lord has willed. And so Paul is back in Asia. He is back in Ephesus. These are the same Jews in the same synagogue that he had visited earlier. And this time, the Apostle Paul walks in and he begins to speak out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading with them from the Scriptures. Paul had been here before. It was for one Sabbath. And now he's going to make Ephesus his not only a starting point, but really the center of his headquarters. Because you're going to see later that he does this for two whole years. Now, do you notice anything different about Paul's approach? He went into the synagogue and he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Do you notice anything different there than you have seen in his first missionary journey and his second missionary journey? Anything strike you as different or odd? The answer is no. There's nothing different. Now, Paul didn't begin his third missionary journey and say, you know what, I've had a certain philosophy and a certain approach for two whole years, or two whole journeys now in about five years, and I think it's time to try something new. I mean, our culture is changing and people's needs are changing and everything's evolving. Let's mix it up a bit. Let's keep it fresh. Let's keep people guessing. The Apostle Paul started his third missionary journey. He did the same thing that he did at the beginning of his first missionary journey all the way through to the end of his second missionary journey. Never changed his approach. The Apostle Paul did the same thing that Peter did. Took the message to the Jews. And what did Peter do to the Jews in Jerusalem? He preached the Word and revealed to the people the glory of Christ as revealed in the Scriptures. And he proclaimed to them the message of salvation from the Old Testament. And then when Paul went to a totally different people group, in a totally different area of the empire, in a totally different culture, what did he do? Change his message? Change his method? He did the same thing that Peter did. He proclaimed to the people the glory of Christ as revealed in Scripture and proclaimed to them the way of salvation from the Old Testament. Peter did it. Paul did it. And friends, every orthodox, biblically blessed movement and church for 2,000 years has done that. Paul did not feel the need, nor did he have the authority to change the method or the message. The Apostle Paul did what the Apostle Paul always did. And listen, it didn't change at the end of his life. First Timothy chapter 4, he said to Timothy, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. At the end of his life, sitting in a dungeon, just days, maybe weeks before his execution, Paul wrote to Timothy and he said, Timothy, preach the Word. My dying thoughts, Timothy, preach the Word. Friends, you and I don't have authority to change that. We don't have authority to design something new, to reinvent the wheel, and then to offer it to our culture as God's blessed vehicle for salvation. The Apostle Paul didn't do that. Nothing new. The same old gospel presented the same old way, and that's what you and I are called to do. He reasoned with them, and he persuaded them for three months concerning the kingdom. The word reason means to to have a dialogue with somebody. It's the word from which we get our English word dialogue. It's a back and forth. The Apostle Paul went into the synagogue, and he asked them questions. They asked him questions, and he reasoned and dialogued back and forth. Do you know why that is? Because few people are presented who are, few people are converted to truth or become saved just simply as a result of a one-time, one-way proclamation. Most people need to sit down and have their questions answered and their concerns addressed and their objections addressed before they are wooed or persuaded to the truth. And that's what Paul did. He went into the synagogue for three months. He made that his base of operations and Paul taught there every time he had opportunity to teach reasoning with them. 
and trying to persuade them. The word persuade means to convince with an argument. The Apostle Paul unleashed all of his rhetorical, all of his intellectual, all of his reasoning capacities in order to draw those people to the truth. He persuaded them. Was he effective in his persuasion? Look down at chapter 19, verse 26, and listen to his detractors, his objectors. Verse 26, you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but almost in all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people saying that gods made without hands are no gods at all. (laughs) They wanted Paul's head. Why? He's persuaded too many people. And he did this with boldness. Now friends, that's the mark of apostolic preaching. Boldness. The apostles in Acts chapter 4, earlier in the book, after being threatened and released by the high priest, what did they do? They went and prayed, Lord, grant that your servants may be able to proclaim your word with all confidence. And that prayer was answered, and the building that they were meeting in was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And then Luke says, they went out and proclaimed the word of God boldly. Paul in Ephesians chapter 6 says, Pray for me that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth. I may make known with boldness what is the mystery and that I may speak with all boldness as I ought to speak. Are you bold? Sometimes I think we're not bold. And the reason we're not bold has nothing to do with the fact that we're ashamed. Nothing to do with the fact that we're ignorant of the truth. But maybe we're not bold sometimes because we think that it is humble if we act or appear uncertain about the truth. Well, I found that to be true for me, but I can't make any kind of claims that I have absolute truth and you need to believe absolute truth. The Apostle Paul did not offer any doubt or any equivocation in his beliefs or his convictions. He was bold. Don't buy into the lie that humility means you have to somehow appear unconfident about your convictions or about truth. If truth is truth, truth is true, and I'm persuaded that it is, then there is nothing arrogant or condescending or boastful or braggadocious about presenting the truth in love with boldness. And that's what the Apostle Paul did. Paul, how do you know that you've got truth? Somebody asks you that, what do you say? Can you say with all boldness and with all love, truth is truth, and I'm not ashamed of it. And I can proclaim the truth with boldness. Because cowardice is no virtue. He was reasoning. He was persuading them. And he did this for three long months. What was he speaking to them of? Look at verse 8. He was persuading them concerning the kingdom of God. Now what does that mean? What What does it mean to persuade or to teach or to preach the kingdom of God? Is this a different message than Paul has preached? Is he all of a sudden preaching about the kingdom when before he was preaching about salvation? Friends, Luke is not using the term kingdom of God in its narrow eschatological sense as in referring to the coming millennial kingdom of Christ. That's not the way that he's using it. He's using it in a very broad, very general sense. The way he does, the way Paul does in Romans chapter 14 and elsewhere in scripture, it's to proclaim the kingdom is to proclaim the gospel. And Luke uses those as synonyms throughout the book of Acts. The gospel of grace is the message of the kingdom. To proclaim the Word is to proclaim the Kingdom because we represent and proclaim a King. And we are sent to announce to people that that King who rules over all offers them forgiveness now and judgment later. And they will either turn and bow the knee to that King or face judgment. 
And so anytime we preach the message of salvation and all the Christianity entails, sanctification and growing in our faith, all of the demands of the King, we are preaching the kingdom of God. He was reasoning and He was persuading them concerning the kingdom, or we might say He was presenting to them the whole counsel of God. Everything. It wasn't just a narrow message. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, but sin is separate. Not the four spiritual laws track. That's not what Paul presented. It was the whole panoply of Scripture. For three months he taught, and I think he taught every time the doors of the synagogue were open. So what happened? Well, he looked at the Word of God proclaimed in verse 8. Look at the Word of God resisted in verse 9. But when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the people, he withdrew from them and took away the disciples reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. The inevitable eventually happened. It took three long months, but the inevitable eventually happened. What happened? They became hardened. The word hardened there is a word that's always used in the New Testament to speak of the hardening of the heart toward God. Paul uses it in Romans 9 to speak of the fact that God has mercy on whom He wills, and God hardens whom He wills. It speaks of the hardening of the heart as an act of God. But at the same time, the hardening of the heart is something that you and I can do. And is something that can happen to us and something that we can participate in. And so we're encouraged in Scripture not to have our hearts hardened or allow our hearts to be hardened. Just as in the Scripture reading, Hebrews chapter 3, the author says, Do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me as in the trial in the wilderness. Hebrews chapter 3, Take care, brethren, that there not be any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, but encourage one another day after day as long as it's still called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The word being hardened or becoming hardened is in an imperfect tense, and by that Luke indicates to us that it happened over a period of time. This was not something that happened overnight. This was a process, which is why the NASB translates it becoming. Some of them were becoming hardened. There was a process of hardening that went on. What was that process? They were being disobedient. Friends, do you know that sin and disobedience hardens your heart? We think we can sin with impunity. We think we can sin and then just simply confess it and all will be well. The Lord will forgive us and I'm no... I'm no worse off if I had just obeyed. That's not true. Sin is the destruction of our soul, and every act of disobedience serves to harden our hearts toward God. Every time truth is proclaimed, and you and I sit there, and we listen to truth, we are confronted with one of two choices. We can either choose to obey that truth, or we can choose to disobey that truth. If we choose to obey that truth, we become a slave of righteousness, and our hearts are softened. And if we choose to disobey that truth, then we become slaves of sin and our hearts are hardened. And every act of disobedience further serves to harden my heart toward obedience. So that eventually, having chosen disobedience and then disobedience and then disobedience, eventually my heart becomes so hardened to the truth that disobedience becomes easier and easier and easier and obedience becomes more and more difficult. And so my heart becomes hardened. Every time I disobey, my heart is hardened by that sin. And every time I obey, I move closer to being a slave of righteousness. That's what they did. They were disobedient. Do you notice how Luke equates 
disbelief or not believing the gospel with disobedience. Why does he do that? Is it disobedience to not believe the gospel? Sometimes when we present truth to people, we give people an invitation. They say, God invites you to trust His Son. No, He doesn't. That's not an invitation. That's a command. You notice the difference between an invitation and a command? We don't invite people to trust Christ. We command them to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ so that they can be saved. That's a command. God now declares to all men everywhere that they should repent. That's a command. So to not believe the gospel is to be disobedient to the gospel. 1 Thessalonians 1.8 The Apostle Paul says those God is coming back or Christ is coming back in judgment upon all those who do not obey the gospel. You won't repent. You won't believe on Christ. It's not the same as turning down an invitation. No, thank you. It's an act of disobedience and disobedience of the worst kind. So Paul says, or Luke says, they were becoming hardening. And look at verse 8, or verse 9. They were being disobedient and they were speaking evil of the way before the people. Now do you notice the response now in verse 9 is different than it was back at the beginning, at the end of chapter 18 when Paul stopped there the first time? What was the response at the end of the second missionary journey? Come in and stay a while. We want to hear more about this, Paul. They were interested in it. It was a positive response. And Paul said, no, I can't. I made a vow. I'm going to Jerusalem. He left. He said, if the Lord wills, I'll return again. Now he gets there and after three months, they've become hardened and look at their response. They begin to speak evil of the way. What accounts for the different response? These are the same Jews in the same synagogue. Are they hearing a different message from Paul? Did he preach something different? Or was it the same message? Why the different response? You know why they responded differently? The first time they heard Paul preach, or the first time they heard Paul teach, it was just for one Sabbath. And they listened to him and said, well, that's interesting. I'd like to hear more about that. That's kind of curious. Let's find out more about it. We never heard anything like that before. Would you you stay? They were open to it. But now the Apostle Paul has presented the whole counsel of God for three months. And you know what it's begun to do? It's begun to wear on their conscience. And their curiosity has given way to conviction. And they have chosen disobedience and disbelief time after time. And in the process of three months, their heart has become more and more hardened to the truth. And now they've begun to blaspheme and speak evil of the way. And these are the same people who invited him to stay a year earlier. But now that the truth has begun to pierce their hearts and the Word of God has become to bear on their conscience and they see their guilt... Now, the thing that attracted them repels them. It's the same message. Friends, people do this all the time. People come into a church, sometimes this one, and their first or second Sunday here, they hear the adult Sunday school class with Jess, or they're over and they listen to Dave, or they're up in here for a service, and they say, man, that's great teaching. We love that. That was exactly what we want and they hunger for. And then over the course of maybe three weeks, maybe three months, maybe three years, nothing changes The message stays the same. The method stays the same. The presentation stays the same. Nothing of substance changes. But then after a period of time, what happens? The thing that attracted them in the beginning repels them in the end. What's changed? Nothing. But eventually, friends, the Word of God comes to bear upon us, and if we will not obey it, we begin to dislike the truth that's being presented. But when we obey truth, then we begin to love it. And we hunger for it. And we want more of it. And obedience becomes something precious to us. 
They begin to speak evil of the way. So Paul says, all right, I'm leaving. I want you to be encouraged by something in verse 9. I want you to be encouraged by the fact that they blasphemed Paul and they blasphemed Christ and they spoke evil of the way. Listen, I take comfort in this fact. If the Apostle Paul could walk into a synagogue and with all of his intellect and all of his abilities and all of his persuasiveness, if he could walk in there and not get everybody to believe the message, I'm comforted by that because I know that I'm not going to be able to get everybody to believe the message as well. Even the Apostle Paul failed in that sense, in that he couldn't get everybody to believe. You say, well, why didn't he perform a miracle? Look at verse 11, would you? God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, and they still blasphemed him. I have no miracle working ability. You have no miracle working ability. You have nothing in your hands but the Word of God. Paul could go in there and with miracles, with all of his intellect, and with all of his persuasiveness... He could not get everybody to believe. Some still blaspheme. And listen, no matter how well prepared you are, no matter how articulate you are, no matter how gifted you are, no matter how many opportunities you take to share truth, there will be some people that you will never be able to convince. There will be some people who upon hearing truth for the 100th time still reject it. And there is nothing you can do to turn that person's heart toward the Lord. Because when God chooses to save somebody... It does not matter how ill-prepared or ill-equipped you are or inarticulate you are, and He wants to use you, you'll be the messenger to bring the truth to that person. At the same time, if God has chosen not to save that individual at that time, it doesn't matter how persuasive you are. It doesn't matter how many signs and wonders you can work in their midst. They will not believe. Because as Jesus said, if they have got Moses and the prophets, and if they will not listen to them, they won't believe if someone were to rise from the dead. And then Jesus raised Lazarus, and with that miracle right in their midst, a dead man brought back to life, John says, they still did not believe. You and I can take encouragement in the fact that even the Apostle Paul could not convince everybody. So instead he took his disciples, those who had believed the Gospel, verse 9, and he went and reasoned daily in the school of Tyrannus. Tyrannus is a a name, not likely his given name, Tyrannus was um, likely some rabbi or teacher who had a school or a lecture hall that he rented or owned in the city of Ephesus, and he let Paul use that. Maybe he was a a Jewish rabbi who had a, a school apart from the synagogue, which was not an uncommon thing. Maybe he became a believer through Paul's ministry, and now he's either renting or loaning his school to Paul, and Tyrannus taught there daily, and then Paul used it when Tyrannus was not using it. The word Tyrannus means a tyrant or our tyrant. That's not likely his given name. What kind of a parent names their child our tyrant or a tyrant? Maybe some of you have that nickname for your child. You can call them Tyrannus, a little tyrant. This was likely a name that was given by his students. You ever nickname your teachers? Every teacher I've ever had had a nickname from me. And not all of them were complimentary. This was a non-complimentary nickname that was given to Tyrannus. And he taught in that school, and Paul was able to use that school when he wasn't using it. Interestingly enough, there is a there is a phrase that is in some of the Western Greek manuscripts that's not in some other Greek manuscripts. So it's not in all of them. And translators are a little reluctant to include the phrase in verse 9. But that little addition, and it may be a scribal uh, addition, it may be some uh, a scribe or a copyist who wrote that in the margin, 
it notes that this happened from the 5th to the 10th hour every day. That's from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. Now, I don't know if that's original with Luke or not. It would definitely indicate something that would have happened at that time because here's what, here's what a typical day looked like. You got up early in the morning while it was cool and you worked yourself almost to sickness before the heat of the day came. Then you went and you had lunch at about 11 or 12 and then you had a siesta and a nap. And you did that through the heat of the day. Nobody worked during the heat of the day. Nobody attended school during the heat of the day. Everybody was sleeping. One historian said there were more people asleep at 1 p.m. than there were at 1 a.m. Everybody just slept in the middle part of the day. Nothing happened until later on in the evening. People would get up and go back to their daily activities. Well, what does Paul do? Ephesians chapter 20, when he's greeting the Ephesian elders in Miletus, Paul says, you know how for three years I worked with my own hands to provide for my own meals and my own needs. So what was he doing during the morning hours? Working. Provide for the needs of not only himself, but also all those who were with him. What did he do in the afternoon while everybody else slept? He had a class. You know how unconventional that is? You know how inopportune that is? You know what the conventional wisdom says? Conventional wisdom says that you should have church services structured and timed so that they are the most convenient, so that most people will come. And more people will come if you can just plan a service so that they can stop in for about 15 minutes on their way to the lake. And they'll stop in for the service and take in a bite of church and then head off to the beach. And you need to make it as convenient as possible and as un assuming as possible and make it as easy as possible for people to get there and they'll come. You know what Paul did? Everybody else is asleep and he's holding classes in the school of Tyrannus in the afternoon hours. And he did this for two years. He taught daily for two years. After work, after lunch, everybody else is asleep. You say, was Paul some sort of a fool? Look at verse 10. This took place for two years so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks was successful. Why? Because Paul knows, look, it has nothing to do with your PowerPoint presentation. It has nothing to do with your light show. It has nothing to do with your music. It has nothing to do with the facility that you meet in. It has nothing to do with the timing of your services. All of those things are irrelevant. All of those things mean nothing. You know what means everything? You know what the core for Paul was? He taught the Word. And it doesn't matter if you do that 11 o'clock in the morning, 1 o'clock in the afternoon, 12 o'clock at night. People who hunger for the Word will come to hear the Word. Can you imagine what it was like to sit in a Bible college for two years with Paul as your lecturer? Wouldn't that have been phenomenal? Friends, there was a church planted in Ephesus, and my assumption would be that the elders of the Ephesian church sat in the school of Tyrannus while Paul taught daily the Word. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16... Corinthians was written from Ephesus. I'm going to have you make note of that in a couple weeks' time where it's appropriate in the text. Corinthians was written from Ephesus. And while writing to the Corinthians, Paul says, I'll remain in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide and open door for effective service has opened up to me, and there are many adversaries. What is he talking about? A wide door for effective service and many adversaries. You know who the adversaries were? the Jews who blasphemed and kicked him out of the synagogue, some adversaries that we'll meet later on in the text as we go through chapter 19. But what's the wide door for effective service? School of Tyrannus. Tyrannus' students were coming from all over the province of Asia. They were meeting in his school, and he was lecturing them. And then right when he gets done, Paul walks in. What an opportunity for ministry. 
Paul never visited the churches in Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Laodicea, or Colossus. He writes a book to the Colossians. But all of those churches that are addressed in Revelation chapter 1 and some other churches were started about this time. How did they start? All who were in the whole province of Asia heard the word. People came to his school. They left his Bible college and they went back to their hometowns. And those churches were planted. And Paul had opportunity to train elders and church leaders and Christians from all over the province of Asia. A wide door for effective service has opened to me, Paul said. And I'm going to take it. That's why he didn't move on. For two whole years, he milked that opportunity. And as a result, there was a phenomenal church that was planted in Ephesus. Paul pastored it for two years. Later on, Timothy would pastor it. In fact, Timothy was pastoring the church in Ephesus when Paul wrote 1 Timothy. And later on, the Apostle John would come from Jerusalem to Ephesus. And he would minister there before being exiled to the island of Patmos, where he would write the book of Revelation. Then he would come back after that to the church in Ephesus and serve there until his death. What a phenomenal body of believers. You know what started that? You know what continued it? You know why the church in Ephesus existed for centuries after Paul and became a leading force for Christianity in the whole region? It was because of Paul's commitment to the Word. He had a high view of Scripture. And when he went into the synagogues, he didn't need some cultural event. He didn't need something to make it relevant. He just came in there with his scrolls and he opened them up and he said, let me tell you about Christ. And he expounded to them the word until they kicked him out. And then day after day after day, he taught the word. He had a normal view of Scripture. We have a stunningly and pathetically low view of Scripture. Because we think Christianity and the power of our message is tied up in everything else. And it's tied up in nothing else but this word. If I only had something in my hands that I could use to reach people with the message of the gospel, what do you think that might be? Do you need another opportunity? I don't think you do. What we really need is a commitment to the Word of God and a belief in its power and its authority to save, secure, and sanctify God's people. Then we will proclaim it and love it and obey it. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. And we return to this theme time and time again as we go through the book of Acts because it is something that, of course, was the center of authority and practice and belief in the early church. And it is something, Father, that should be more at home in our hearts and more at the center of our ministry and our lives. And I pray, God, that You would give us the grace to love Your Word, to obey Your Word, and to proclaim Your Word, trusting in it as our authority and the power of the Holy Spirit to use your word to quicken the hearts. Thank you, Father, that you bless your word and those who are faithful to it, both individually and as a church. We ask all of this and thank you for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.